welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Okay. So this way you can see me neurotically checking and rechecking the numbers on my device. It's sort of like people who leave home and then drive immediately back to check to make sure that they turn the stove off. You mean OCD people? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little OCD about my recorder. Well, it's good to be a bit OCD. Mm, yeah. Because well, these devices are constantly lying awake yeah. at night thinking of ways to trick us. Definitely. This whole universe, really, that we perceive is just a a thin veneer of, of reason on a bottomless ocean of chaos. Yes, a thin icing of reason on a rich, <laughs> meaty chaos cake. I don't know, I'm just trying to think, what would a chaos cake be made out of? It'd be made out of all, all kinds of shit you don't normally put in a cake, that's what. Yeah, everything, but... No, but it would have to also include the cake ingredient somewhere, or else it'd just be... <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true, you'd have cake and nails yeah. and... <laughs> The meat of fell creatures <laughs> and madness and unrequited love. <laughs> yeah. The tears of disappointed salarymen. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. People um, realizing it actually doesn't get any better than this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing like reading Lovecraft all morning to put you in a weird frame of mind. Definitely. Not necessarily a good frame of mind. I find that. Yeah, you know, something I've said about Philip K. Dick, at least his weirder fictions like Ubik or the Free Stigmata or Valis, is that I feel like those stories have a kind of magical ability to reach out from the page and get inside me in a way that writing doesn't usually. So you're reading about these characters who are being put through their paces as they are shuffled from one reality to another and they're having to make sense of it. And that experience is happening to the reader, or at least it's happening to me, as I am being shuffled through one reality after another and am trying to make sense of it. And there is a weird feeling that I get if I'm reading this stuff late at night that the walls are beginning to pulse and bulge like like it's a Cronenberg movie. Like, you know, the, the walls suddenly feel like they're made of some kind of tenebrous flesh. Right. And, and that kind of, like, eldritch nonsense. Like, you know, there's this cartoon, or not a cartoon, but like a drawing that appeared. I, th I don't know where it first appeared, but uh, I think maybe the Rolling Stone article on Philip K. Dick, which was one a big moment that Dick sort of started becoming a bit more mainstream in his popularity. And there's this great picture of Dick sitting in a chair reading a book and behind him through an open window, this gibbering tentacled monstrosity is beginning to emerge. 
Oh, I love that picture. I love that painting because it expresses something about the actual experience of reading PKD. Well, if I can switch it up, I have a similar feeling reading H.P. Lovecraft, who even though his style, I'm not going to pretend it's my cup of tea because it isn't, but even though his style isn't my cup of tea, even though I don't feel particularly impelled to read much more Lovecraft than is required of me by my job, meaning weird studies, uh, at the same time, I've got to give him respect as one of the few writers who can do the same kind of thing. Although, in my case, because I think I am relatively insensible to the H.P. Lovecraft wavelength, it registers not as eldritch horror, but mild irritation and grumpiness. So I'm in a kind of a grumpy mood this morning. Oh, okay. But it's, but it's an eldritch grumpiness. I think the eldritch warrants a certain amount of grumpiness. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, you know, instead of going mad like, uh, like you're supposed to in an H.P. Lovecraft story, I just, I just become mildly distempered. That Rolling Stone image is actually quite apropos right because remember we we talked about that particular image so once again it's like it's a, a cartoon of a philip k dick reading while this tentacled entity is slipping in through the window and it does i i agree I, I mean dick at his best induces a kind of eldritch mood that i think that image captures very accurately but it's interesting that the artist who created that image had to resort to a Lovecraftian horror to express what was going on when you read H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. I don't remember any point. tentacles in Love in uh, Dick. No. You know, and in our correspondence a couple of years ago, we developed a concept that would include both Lovecraft and Dick's universes, and we called it Love Dick. Or was it Dick Love? <laughs> um, or Dick Love, yeah, Dick, that's right. Dick Love. Because we both have the maturity of 12-year-old boys. Right, exactly. In our private correspondence. So of, course, so, of course, I thought that was wildly funny. Yeah, we would never use a word like Dick Love in our podcast. It's just for our correspondence. That's right. <laughs> this is a family podcast. Right. Um, but the, the point was I love that... to imagine. I love to imagine a nuclear family sitting around the Victrola, dad smoking a pipe, Mom's knitting, little buddy and sis, you know, propped up on their, on their elbows on the on the hearth rug, listening to weird studies. Yeah, that's the mental image I have. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me of uh, Orson Welles' uh, broadcast of War of the Worlds, where mm -hmm. <laughs> all these nuclear families were going nuclear, <laughs> like with fear <laughs> and terror. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm more of a Lovecraft guy. I've never been able to really, I mean, with some exceptions. I mean, Vallis really did a number on me when I first read it. It basically led to a series of very bizarre synchronicities that I can't pretend didn't happen as a result of or in some connection with the book. So, yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you that. But, um, yeah, my sensibilities are more Lovecraftian. I respond to that. I love the purple prose I love the excessive use of adjectives and adverbs. There's just something about it, this uh, uh, luxuriousness about Lovecraft's writing. And also, it's funny because in one sense, you could say, well, he's just this pulpy writer who's relying too much on language and not enough on story to convey the moods he wants to convey. At the same time, as you could see his style as indicative of 
some great insight he had into the nature of reality. And that's what Graham Harmon says in his book on Lovecraft, which we'll put in the show notes, that language is inadequate to what he's trying to communicate or what he wants to evoke. So that this excessive use of adverbs and this overbearing style are just symptoms of what he's trying to do, which is to describe the indescribable. So it's like every Lovecraft story is a failure of language. And that's kind of the point. I really like that. Yeah, language that is enacting its own defeat before the uh, mysterious and absurd forces of the universe. Right, right. And um, whereas, you know, I'm going to confess something. Actually, it's probably fairly obvious to anybody who's listened to many episodes of the show that for somebody who hosts a podcast called Weird Studies, I am a remarkably bougie and um, kind of, I don't know, kind of square Apollonian aficionado of the weird because the stylistic excess of Lovecraft, I, I can dig it. I have to be in the right mood. But I really do prefer writers who have a kind of elegance. Writers who are able to use a little bit, they're able to deploy fewer of their tools and make elegant use of them, sort of uh, to use a boxing metaphor that will resonate with absolutely nobody in our listening audience, like somebody with just a really good jab, uh, like Larry Holmes, who's able to control an entire fight with a single punch applied in a myriad of ways with marvelous execution and incredible subtlety, as opposed to a swarmer, somebody who's hitting you from every angle and is constantly applying pressure, constantly coming forward. Although I like those kind of fighters too, so never mind. But Lovecraft strikes me as very much the latter kind. Mm -hmm. And I have a weakness for the former kind. Right. Not to say that Dick is like that, because actually on a writing level, I don't think Dick's writing was particularly... Uh, interesting qua writing, you know, like qua style, until the seventies. I find even then, Alice, even for example. Then. You you think? Well, you know, it's funny. I'll say this: I, like, I could never get get over a certain pulpiness in Dick's style. Like he was writing kind of throwaway texts, almost like they read like drafty. They read like first drafts, and that's one form that pulpiness takes. But then again. Lovecraft's own style is also pulpy in another sense, which is the, the over-reliance on prose to convey things that might have been better conveyed through narrative. Um, mm. Anyways, there's no real point in us pointing out the flaws in these writers. But well, because... actually, it's not so much. It's not so much that is. I'm maybe picking up on something from our Naked Lunch episode, which just dropped this week. Right. Um, when we're recording this. That it's not so much that we're talking about flaws of writers as we're trying to establish what their wavelength is. Right. You know, their, their cognitive signature, a kind of frequency with which we can vibrate in sympathy or not. And uh, I think you're quite right that there's a kind of a style of pulpiness in Dick's writing that has something to do actually... It occurs to me that it appeals to my own native weaknesses, which is a weakness for ideas over the beauty of style on its own to convey something, which is weird because I'm actually sort of a convert to the latter idea, the idea of like rich style as substance in itself. But if I go back to my roots, to who I really am rather than who I want to be, 
I think I have a weakness for that style of pulpiness where it's this kind of amphetamine rush of insane ideas and the prose is just kind of the delivery device for that. Yes, that's a great point. And I think um, I'll drag the wedge out in a second, but I, I want to point out that Lovecraft tends to write from the perspective of an outsider, whereas Dick tends to write from the perspective of an insider. Lovecraft is glimpsing these ideas from afar, whereas Dick is inhabiting these ideas and he's, he, his characters are inhabiting these ideas. This is a major difference between Dick and Lovecraft, and also, I'd argue, between someone like Ligotti and Lovecraft, because Ligotti's characters inhabit this chaos. They're part of it, whereas Lovecraft's characters are rational subjects who discover that they're part of this chaos. Um, right. And the, the epiphany of the story is the moment of discovery. So in a sense, Dick is kind of a sequel to Lovecraft in a way, and an attempt, I would argue, that Dick is an attempt to recover what Lovecraft claimed was completely lost, which is a certain humanity in this chaos. And Dick's project is very much about recovering that, that sense of human purpose that Lovecraft claimed was lost completely in the revelations of the Great Old Ones and in the Necronomicon and all that stuff. So, right. But to drag out the wedge again, I, I think we discussed this before, we, we talked about this in our correspondence, is that Dick is very much a thin edge of the wedge kind of writer, whereas Lovecraft is very much a thick end of the wedge kind of writer, and oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So oh, in, yeah. in the sense that um, Dick is about, well, what do I do in this? How do I find meaning in this? Where, yeah. and, and Lovecraft is much more about, what is this? What is this yeah. in itself? What's left when I'm gone? You know? Right. There are two perspectives on the same phenomenon, I think. The great revelation of the 20th century, which is the non-human, in whatever way you want to you choose to interpret that, both of these writers are reacting to this to this revelation, right? This slow piecing together of dissociated knowledge that Lovecraft predicted would disclose monstrous vistas of reality that we'd have to deal with and that would be incommensurate with our rational expectations that the universe would respond to our reason kindly and fairly, yeah, which is not that's the case. Right. Yeah. And that's what dick love is. I mean... Right. <laughs> and I say that very seriously. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what dick love means. Uh, it's, the, it's the whole wedge, you know. Right. <laughs> They're working from two ends of the same wedge, and that is the incomprehensibility of existence. Not that we don't know it, but that it's highly unlikely that we ever could at least know it in any extensive way, at least subject it to our control. And perhaps that's what it is, is a revelation not only of a universe that doesn't really exist in relation to us, but also a universe that we can't control. And so Dick and Lovecraft are each poets of loss of control. Mm. And the Dick hero is typically a kind of schlubby guy. I talked about this a little bit when we were talking to Eric Davis. The schlubby guy with a paunch and a bad job and a troubled marriage, you know, just sort of like an everyman figure who finds himself thrust into the midst of a universe that is teeming with chaos, a universe that threatens total loss of control. And as you say, it deals very much with the subject end of this. How am I going to navigate this situation where things are coming at me from some outside or for somewhere that I can't perceive? And it's almost like sort of playing tennis with an opponent you can't see. Like imagine a tennis court 
where the other side of the net is shrouded in darkness. And so you hit your ball over the net and you see it disappear into the darkness and then you hear a distant thwack and then a ball comes whizzing out of the darkness at you and then you have to deal with that. That's kind of the situation that Dick's heroes tend to be put in. And as you say, this is a different kind of experience from Lovecraft, who's much more of a thick end of the wedge guy, somebody who is dealing with what is. And the revelation of what is to characters who aren't negotiating it, they're simply blackjacked by it. They're sucked into it and destroyed. He's interested in the maelstrom, in the whirlpool that tears apart the ship. He's not interested in the ship. To use your analogy, it's like Lovecraft is talking about someone who's playing tennis with the universe. In Dick, the universe is playing tennis, but it's following weird rules. And tennis is something we didn't know it was or whatever. Whereas in Lovecraft, you're playing tennis with something that's not playing tennis at all. It's like those tennis ball machines that are just like shooting out those balls. (laughs) That, That machine is not playing tennis. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. If you stop hitting the balls back, it's just going to pummel you with balls forever. And it's, it's going to keep playing <laughs> tennis long after you've quit. And, uh, and that's kind of the dilemma in Lovecraft is what do you do with the universe that deeply, fundamentally does not give a shit about you? Whereas I think in Dick, there's always this search for how does this, this universe deeply cares or some aspect of it deeply cares about me? Or at least, and Dick isn't conclusive about that, as you've pointed out many times, he doesn't conclude that the universe cares. He's just hoping it does and trying to decipher what he assumes is a signal that doesn't just devolve into noise. He's hoping that the signal he's receiving contains some kind of message. Um, mm. Yeah, that's great. And you know, it's funny, you mentioned how you got a series of synchronicities in the wake of reading Vallas. Weird that you said that, because the same thing has happened to me. Each time I read Vallas, I get a little shower of small synchronicities. And it's because they're small. I don't write them down, and I can't remember most of them. But the one I remember was going to the gym, and like I was on a treadmill, and there's a TV. You know, they always have TVs on with usually like cable news or some shit or sports with the sound off. I guess they had it on ESPN. And I looked up, apparently there's a baseball player named King Felix, which if you've read Vallis, you know King Felix is a major point in the novel. King Felix is like this cryptic message that starts appearing. And it's one of those tennis balls whizzing out of the dark at the hero, horse lover fat. What the fuck is King Felix? Where is this coming from? What larger significances are arrayed behind the seemingly random appearance of this phrase? And... I'm the gym, and I think I was listening to a podcast, maybe it was Eric Davis talking about Philip K. Dick, and I look up, and the first thing I see is King Felix on the TV. Wow. I mean, and it's not that crazy, because there is actually a guy named King Felix, but at the same time, that's a kind of a thing that happens when I'm reading Dick. I find It's weird. It's like a weirdness attractor. It's a... You know, the reason I bring up this relatively minor synchronicity is not because it even pointed to anything particular in my own life, except I am reading Vallis, which, you know, I already knew that. But it's the appearance of weird little things, blips from outside, tennis balls whizzing at you from out of the dark, is the characteristic experience of the Dick hero. And it is also the experience of synchronicity. So somehow it sort of makes sense that Dick's 
stories manifest exactly the same kind of thing that they manifest for their protagonists. It makes sense at any rate to me, even though that actually as I put that in words, that sounds, uh, I mean, obviously it's impossible. It is, according to any normal logic, impossible for an author as part of his style and his artistic technique to induce synchronicities in the reader. So I'm talking nonsense, and yet at the same time, this is nonsense that's been abundantly confirmed by my own experience. Right. Well, impossible in one paradigm, maybe not so much in another. Right. As you tweeted yesterday, that great quote, what was it? Oh, it was um, Theodore Rorschach, a book called The Making of a Counterculture, which nobody reads anymore because the part of it that deals with the counterculture of the 60s is now extremely dated, but the book is very much worth reading for talking about the kind of things we talk about on this show all the time. But of this, there can be no doubt. In dealing with the reality that our non-intellective powers grasp, there are no experts. Lovecraft's fiction and Dick's fiction seem to suggest that there are vast areas of reality that don't respond to purely intellectual modes of inquiry or cognition. And therefore, there are vast areas of reality that have nothing to do with what we perceive to be the laws of the universe, and that things that seem impossible intellectually might be very possible on one of these other levels. And that's something we discussed with Joshua Ramey in various contexts as well uh, that we've touched on. And, and I think that it's too easy to dismiss even a small synchronicity as, as insignificant because it's impossible, according to a particular intellectual model. It's too easy to deny that. At the same time, as it's very easy also to raise that synchronicity into some new gospel rationalize yeah. it into some new set of laws which just reaffirm the intellectual paradigm and therefore you know becomes just as limited as what was there before so how do you dwell in in weirdness and that's very much what lovecraft was about first text that we read in preparation for this recording was Notes on the Writing of Weird Fiction, a, a very short essay that Lovecraft wrote. I think it's actually from a letter he wrote. I'm not sure where this essay was published, if at all. But in this essay, he explains his own motive, his own reasons for writing weird stories. And I really like what he says because it really resonates with me personally. I'll just read the first bit and then we can discuss that maybe. My reason for writing stories is to give myself the satisfaction of visualizing more clearly and detailedly and stably the vague, elusive, fragmentary impressions of wonder, beauty, and adventurous expectancy which are conveyed to me by certain sights, ideas, occurrences, and images encountered in art and literature. And for certain sights, he gives some examples, scenic, architectural, atmospheric, etc. I choose weird stories because they suit my inclination best. One of my strongest and most persistent wishes 
being to achieve momentarily the illusion of some strange suspension or violation of the galling limitations of time, space, and natural law, which forever imprison us and frustrate our curiosity about the infinite cosmic spaces beyond the radius of our sight and analysis. It's pretty good. <laughs> what he's saying essentially is that stories begin with vague impressions, that the key element of weirdness is the mood, mm. that somehow there are certain things that happen or certain things you see, and some of them might seem quite innocuous in themselves, but you see them from a certain angle, in a certain light, at a certain moment, and they radiate this eldritch energy that hints at something deeper. It could be anything. It could just be like a dead bird on the sidewalk that you happen upon, or the way your cat looks at you in the middle of the night, or a certain passage in a book of philosophy, for example, reading Kant. Kant is filled with these little moments where things just get really strange. And I'm thinking about Kant because there's a clear Kantian orientation in the way he's articulating this idea here. It also distinguishes the weird story from the ghost story or the classical horror story, where what you're dealing with, in fact, is a very stable world in which some anomaly enters and needs to be dispelled. Like Stephen King is big on that type of story, right? They're just horror stories because in the sense, like there's a way the world should be and the world is that way. And then something that should not be, something that doesn't belong in the world comes in and then needs to be banished. And then the primal order of the real is restored. Whereas in Lovecraft, it's different. The horror always comes to disprove the validity or the stability that we assumed obtained. So in a sense, what Lovecraft is doing and what a classic ghost story writer is doing are kind of at odds. The horror story and the weird story are kind of opposites in a sense. I like what you say about, well, actually, you, you didn't say it. Lovecraft did. Unspooling a story from a single image, like a, an image held internally, perhaps an image from a dream, or even just like a passing presentiment of evil or a sudden strange mood of exaltation, something like that that is not itself of narrative shape and hardly even something that you can think of as a, like a temporal object, as something that develops or changes. The narrative, the thing that develops and changes, the thread of time is something that you introduce to, as it were, unravel or spool out this single intense moment of intuition or imagination. I love that idea, and I think that that is definitely, for me, what a weird story is. Or at least put it this way, I'm not thinking in terms of trying to classify what is or is not a weird story, but rather what makes a story weird for me. I'm thinking, for example, of the Algernon Blackwood story, The Wendigo, which you and I did a good episode on, which is now unfortunately lost. But we'll, we'll do it again, right? Some point, yeah. <laughs> the look on your face says hell no well no it just feels like a chore right now because it's still too recent the loss is still fresh so let's wait till yeah, the, the, the scars we'll up wait a, a while yeah but in any event you know there's isn't a lot of stuff that's actually scary that happens in that story not a lot of incident you know, it's not packed with supernatural events. There's just one supernatural event. But it's little details that don't serve the plot particularly. They don't move the plot. 
They don't characterize anybody. They don't even characterize anything. They just kind of exist weirdly. I'm not expressing this well, but the thing I'm thinking of is when Defago, okay, so if you haven't read the story of the Wendigo, you should. It's about a hunting party in Northern Ontario, the part of the world I'm from, that goes into the deep woods hunting moose and one part of the party splits off and ends up going into a very dangerous and terrifying part of the forest where the Wendigo lives. The Wendigo is a creature from Cree and Algonquin mythology. The Wendigo is this figure of starving, of hunger. And it famously, it comes for people and consumes them or does various terrible things to them. And in the version of the story that Blackwood tells, what it does is it abducts this French-Canadian guide named Defago. And at one point we hear from the point of view of a character who is witnessing all this but isn't harmed by the Wendigo, but he experiences at least a little bit of what happens to Defago. He doesn't really know what happened. He doesn't see it happen. But he can hear Defago's voice suddenly weirdly high up, like a 100 feet off the ground, and... The description of it is a voice called aloud in tones of anguish terror that at the same time held something strangely like the frenzied exaltation of delight, which on its own is kind of a little shard of something that lodges in my mind. But then what he hears Defago says is, oh, oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire. Oh, oh, the height and fiery speed. Why would that be such a creepy line? I don't know. I mean, from a plot point of view, eventually you realize that this Wendigo spirit makes his victims fly so fast that their feet burst into flame. And so he's high up and his feet are on fire. So prosaically, that line gives us a hint, right? A clue. But it's not the clue. It's not the plot-serving device of that little line that makes it creepy. For me, it's the, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire. Oh, oh, this height and fiery speed. It's the phrasing of it. Yeah. The, the weird rhythm of the line. It's like a musical thing. And the idea of this line delivered in an anguished tone halfway between despair and a kind of ecstasy. Like, my mind can't quite assemble all the pieces of that. Right. You know, I can't quite make it do logical, reasonable work of advancing the plot. What it does is it just sort of sits there working on my imagination, conjuring a mood like a spell. And this, to me, is the thing that weird fiction, when it's really cracking, that's what it does. Right. Because it's interesting, because in the story, when you first hear that line, there's something weird and horrific about it because you don't know what he's talking about when it's finally explained what he's talking about like that that prosaic explanation that you mentioned that oh it's because his feet turned to fire because he flew that's not the horrific part Um, right he's just closing that off and you know going on to other things at that point the weird manifests usually at the level of the surface, the signs themselves, not in the deep causes of things. Yeah, the deep causes are always kind of temporary explanation. That if the tr- if it's truly a weird universe, the story's set in those deep causes never really obtain objectively. They're just 
ways that we explain to ourselves what happened. The real weirdness always occurs at the level of of surfaces, at the pure, just that that line he, the other character overhears from his friend, which makes no sense, has no context, and yet resonates with strange meaning. That's where the weird occurs. And mm. in, in that little essay from Lovecraft, he writes, atmosphere, not action, is the great desideratum of weird fiction. Indeed, all that a wonder story can ever be is a vivid picture of a certain type of human mood. And um, mm. moods are, characteristically, moods are irrational, right? Moods are probably the most irrational human phenomenon there is. A mood is precisely what sets in despite what's going on, you know? Oh, I'm in a bad mood. Right. And you could say I'm in a bad mood because of X, but X is not happening now. The mood is happening now, and the mood is its own thing, and you can't. you have to just right. deal with it. So this idea that weird fiction is about conveying moods, I think, goes very deep. And it, another great example, I think uh, an even better example for what we're trying to articulate here from Algernon Blackwood's work is The Willows. Have you read that one? Yeah. Yeah. At least in The Wendigo, the ghost story writer can find some comfort in saying, oh, there's this entity called the Wendigo and it came and attacked them. Whereas in The Willows, you have nothing to hold on to. In the yeah. willows, it's two guys canoeing in Hungary, and they they're in this vast tributary, this kind of system of tributaries on the Danube, and they're camping out, and there's, there's all these willows all around them, and they just go nuts because of the willows. But there's never, <laughs> it's not it's not like one of the willows is a dryad that takes some shape and attacks them. Right. It's not like poltergeist where the tree attacks the house. Right. No, it's just the sound that the willows make, the way they look, their plaintive appearance, the way they sway in the wind. There's something about the willows that opens up this part of reality that these characters are not prepared to face. I find that the willows is a perfect example. And I think that Lovecraft talks about it in his essay on supernatural horror and literature um, of, of exactly what we're talking about here, where mood is operative. Mood is the thing. Um, the Wendigo too, but the Wendigo offers an escape route to those who don't want to deal with that, right? It gives you a causal explanation in a certain sense. You know, it's very tentative and unsatisfactory perhaps, which is why a lot of weird fiction, I mean, weird fiction authors tend to not get very rich as a rule. Why is that? Why do horror authors get rich? Why is Stephen King a very wealthy man and why did Lovecraft and Blackwood and many others, I think Blackwood was independently wealthy, but Machen certainly ended up in a pretty dire economic situation and so many weird authors, I mean, certainly Poe. Um, what is it about weird fiction that's so, I guess, at least implicitly enough offensive to our sensibilities that it never really becomes successful? Why is that? I don't know. I mean, my standard answer would be that the, all of the things that you've described, all of the tendencies in weird fiction that you've described, tend to take us away from those parts of writing that make it, uh, I don't know, more readily digestible. I mean, you think about the willows. As you say, it's just like it's about two guys being driven insane by the willows. There's no enemy really there's no adversary you know you think about like screenwriting 101 things it's just like there has to be 
a protagonist, there has to be an antagonist. There has to be a principle of conflict. The principle of conflict propels the story in a more or less linear way. Blah, blah, blah. None of that shit has to happen in a weird story. And in fact, most of that will actively subvert mm -hmm. that process of mood making that a weird fiction writer is engaged in. Right. You know, weird, you know one thing that's really interesting about Lovecraft's piece on how he writes, notes on writing weird fiction, his insistence that the heart of the story is a basically atemporal thing is basically just this flash of image or emotion, mood, that itself has no time. And yet for it to work as a story, you have to kind of almost extrude it like a piece of taffy into a line. And he describes in remarkably precise detail how he does that. He says that his average procedure is this five-point process where he creates a scenario, and he notes that the scenario happens almost entirely in his head. And he says, number one is prepare synopsis or scenario of events in the order of their absolute occurrence. He says absolute occurrence, like what actually happens, not the order of their narration. And then he, in the second and third stages, starts imagining how you can then start mapping specific incidents into two timelines, a timeline of things as they actually happen and then a timeline of things as they are narrated. And then from there, he can get to the final draft and type it up and send it off to his editor. So you can see how Lovecraft is actually theorizing a way of making a translation of the weird story in its, as it were, native habitat, in its original form, which is as an idea that is practically incommunicable, and finds a way of translating it into something that works as a story. But what that suggests to me is that in a weird story, narrative, while it's always present, exists to some extent as a matter of necessity. You know, it's not the story that's driving this thing. And... So I think weird fiction is always flirting with this kind of amorphousness. It's flirting with a style of writing that actually can be very avant-garde. It's interesting. If you look at the big Tor anthology of weird stories, which is um, edited by... Jeff Vandermeer and his wife. Yeah, that's right. There's a great little introduction to it by Michael Moorcock, and he describes how in the early years of what we now call the weird story... You know, it's not like people had any particularly vivid idea that there was something called a weird story. And so the actual facts on the ground weird stories that people were writing were coming from all kinds of directions, including like artsy surrealist or expressionist writers who were very caught up in this or that movement of European modernism and thereby ended up writing weird stories. So you can come from the experimental reaches of fiction where you're throwing out most of what people find indispensable in stories. And you can find a surprisingly short path from that very avant-garde, high art realm to the pulp realm of, of Lovecraft's work. There's a secret affinity between what Lovecraft does and what a lot of avant-garde fiction is interested in doing. It just so happens that one hangs out in sort of a trash stratum of culture and the other is at least until relatively recently more academically sanctified. I think the recent academic turnabout on pulp fiction and a sudden admiration for writers like Dick and Lovecraft 
has much to do with a budding awareness that there is, in fact, a secret affinity between the avant-garde and the pulps, or at least certain pulp writers. Oh, but yeah. as anybody will, t- will tell you, you know, doing avant-garde art is not a good way to get rich. Yeah, I think you put your finger on something important here, which is that maybe one way to put it would be that the weird story, in Aristotelian terms, a, a story, especially a story that deals with fear and pain and anguish, has a specific role. Aristotle would say that the artist is inflicting a wound that he then heals, and he calls that healing catharsis. That And somehow at the end, it makes sense that this tragedy occurred. And therefore, I have a better understanding of how to live my life. Whereas the weird story, the weird artist inflicts a wound he doesn't heal. He leaves you bleeding. And then you have to deal with it because the goal is to convey the mood of weirdness. So you have to finish the story with this mood. You can't go through weirdness and come out you of it. You can't dispel it. Yeah, you can't dispel it. You're like, oh, that was weird. Returning to your job as a dental assistant. Right, Exactly. Yeah, and it leaves you in that state. And maybe not everybody's ready to do that. In his essay on supernatural horror in literature, Lovecraft writes that the appeal of the spectrally macabre, he calls it, is narrow because it demands from the reader, I'm quoting here, it demands from the reader a certain degree of imagination and a capacity for detachment from everyday life. So basically, it takes a sensitive soul. And this would connect Lovecraft with some of his forebears, like the decadents and the Gothic writers of the 19th century and the certain romantics. He says, the sensitive souls, these sensitive people are always with us. And sometimes a curious streak of fancy invades an obscure corner of the very hardest head so that no amount of rationalization, reform, or Freudian analysis can quite annul the thrill of the chimney corner whisper of the lonely wood. There's a part of us that is attracted to the weird, to the unknown. But... I think there are very clear, very strong vested interests that would discourage any indulgence of that inclination, except for a few people who, for some one reason or another, are, are attracted to this and also have the means and the, uh, the, the wherewithal or whatever to indulge in it, to go there. So that's strange because there's kind of a weird revival going on right now. But I always have to wonder how much of it is really about the weird. Or maybe the situation is such, as we were talking about with Eric Davis, this, the global situation is such that we can't ignore the weird anymore and that we, yeah. we're all in a kind of weird mood um, yeah. and that we have to deal with this, in which case this weird revival or this renaissance of the weird or this kind of flourishing of the weird right now is on point and makes sense and should be encouraged because it's helping us deal with certain incommensurabilities that we just have to deal with. Maybe there's some of that going on. But all this is a way of saying that there's a difference between classic ghost stories and horror stories and weird fiction, whether it's of the Dick or the Lovecraft variety, or for that matter, like an avant-garde writer like Bruno Schultz or Kafka. You know, these writers were very much performing a similar thing, but just in a different idiom. So... There's something you said a moment ago that I want to return to, your metaphor of, you know, a ghost story writer wants to suture the wound back up at the end of the story, whereas the weird story writer wants to leave you bleeding. I might say, especially if I'm thinking of Lovecraft, it might be more accurate to say that the weird fiction writer gives you an infection. (laughs) Yeah, that's a better metaphor. You know, infection seems to me to be not a bad word to 
invoke here, particularly vis-a-vis Lovecraft himself. And I'll tell you why. I was reflecting on this this morning when I was walking my dog. There's a concept that I think I've mentioned before in one of these conversations. It's from Charles Taylor's philosophical tome, A Secular Age. The point of the book is to describe how you ended up in a condition in 1500 in the North Atlantic West where God is inescapable in every aspect of society versus now in a secular age where you can easily escape God. That is to say, any reference to God, any observance of religion in a civic society. And his basic idea is to talk about this process in terms of the shifting conditions of belief. And one of those conditions is what he calls the buffered self. And he points out that if you think about it like a magical world, a world of demons, a world of ghosts, of supernatural entities and forces, human beings in that kind of a world are thoroughly penetrated by these entities and forces. And that is the fundamental fact of existence. If you ever read an ethnography, for example, Evans Pritchard's ethnography of the Azande people of Central Africa, a society in which the existence and daily reality of witchcraft is not a matter of conjecture. It is as unremarkable and prosaic and everyday as the existence of termites. In such a society where witchcraft is considered to be a basic level of causality in everyday life, people tend to be really paranoid. Everybody is constantly afraid that they're being bewitched, that they're being penetrated by unseen forces. And Taylor points out that one of the fundamental things that happened in the shaping of a modern subject is the creation of what he calls a buffered self which is a self that is insulated against being penetrated in this way, where we can decide what forces are coming in and which ones are not. From a certain point of view, and to mix it up and think of another philosopher, Sloterdijk, Sloterdijk has said that for him, immunology is the key word of modern philosophy, that to understand the human being, we have to understand the phenomenon of immunology, all forms of biological and cultural self-preservation against and outside. And from this point of view, we live at a point where our immunological tendency, our tendency to be very watchful and careful of all things that come in, whether we're talking biologically or whether we're talking psychologically. You know, we are obsessed with what might be in our food and what might be in our water. You see ever-proliferating dietary restrictions. You can see this culturally, both in xenophobic, racist, uh, right-wing nationalist groups that are constantly obsessing about cultural impurities, but you can see it also on the left with a kind of endless paranoia about whether any given idea or an utterance, a word, might betray us from within. And this is getting back to what I said about like how infection might be the operative metaphor here, that the problem with the excessively buffered self, somebody with a kind of immune disorder such that they're so hyper aware of the danger of things penetrating them, of getting through to them, of influencing them or altering them, that you reach a kind of a paranoia that's weirdly parallel to the paranoia of somebody living in a, in a Zande village. You're constantly 
on the watch for things coming in, but your buffers are pretty good. Your walls, your shields are always up. But the danger that you can't know about is the danger from within, internal corruption. So I was thinking about how cancer, you know, cancer has always been a scourge of humankind. People have been dying of cancer for as long as there have been people. Cancer is, I don't know if it's the number one killer in the West, but it's got to be close to it, right? So I'm not saying like cancer is an imaginary danger. It's a very real danger. But it seems to me cancer also functions on a symbolic level as like the very emblem of death itself. Because cancer is a betrayal from within it. You know, however clean you keep yourself, however healthy you are, you can still be betrayed by your body from within. All the buffering in the world will not help you from, you know, inner betrayal. And to me, Lovecraft is the great poet yes. of the buffer. Yeah, He perfectly expresses the paranoia of the buffered self where the buffers start collapsing simply because you realize, you know, it's like the old horror movie trope. You nail all the doors and windows shut and realize that your tormentor is in the house with you. Exactly. That's so brilliant. It's so true. If we think imaginally about the great dangers that are perceived today in that context, in, the, in a kind of medical or hygienic or health context, like, for example, cancer or germs, right? People are afraid of germs. And there's also a, a very entrenched tendency to attribute cancer to external or environmental causes, right? If you That's smoke, right. you get cancer. If you live in a city, you get cancer. Because all Use these your things- your cell phone too much, you yeah, get cancer. you get cancer. All these things get in and cause cancer. Well, what is cancer? We don't think of it, but cancer is the Latin word for crab. It represents one of the most clearly- inhuman or monstrous creatures that we encounter commonly. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a crab in the wild. I was shooting in Samoa last year and we were walking around the pool at night and these this crab just comes up right in front and it, it walks sideways. And this is one reason why the crab in mythology and folklore is always a kind of symbol of the unconscious because it walks sideways. It's like a Lynchian character that's breaking the rules of how one moves around and it seems to follow a logic that's completely inhuman or non-human because of the way it walks, because of the way it emerges from the, from the depths. In the tarot, the moon card, the moon trump, is an image, traditionally is an image of a crab emerging from the depths into the moonlight. So cancer is a great old one. I mean, there's no better way of visualizing or imagining what cancer means in the human mind, in the human collective imagination, than to think of it in Lovecraftian terms. It comes from within. It's not a destructive illness like a virus that comes in from the outside, although the virus also has Lovecraftian connotations or potentialities. Absolutely. Uh, the cancer is your own system betraying you. It's a proliferating creation. It's not a destruction. It's cells multiplying. It's not the dead coming in, like the kind of undead virus that we can't decide if it's alive or not coming in and destroying you. It's creating something in you something that will destroy you but through a weird act of creation and that's very that feels very lovecraftian to me
the other text that I suggested and you seemed to dig it was the... Um, oh, I did. Yeah. The very short prose poem, Nyarlathotep by Lovecraft. So this story that he wrote, I think quite early on in his career, he represents the first appearance of this entity in the Lovecraftian canon called Nyarlathotep. And Nyarlathotep is an interesting character because he's not one of the great old ones. So in Lovecraft, there's this whole mythos that he develops through his work. So the great old ones are this ancient race that lived on Earth before humans were there. And they're dormant now. They're just basically waiting for their time to emerge or to come back and basically devour the universe or whatever. And then there are these other entities called the Outer Gods. And the Outer Gods are these completely indifferent, alien, monstrous forces of creation and destruction, the mere glimpsing of which is enough to drive you insane. And Nyarlathotep in the Lovecraft mythos, in the Cthulhu mythos, Nyarlathotep is the messenger of the outer gods. And he's the messenger because whereas the outer gods are completely non-human, completely indifferent, they're, they're always described in the most chaotic, strange, alien terms possible. Although they are like that, Nyarlathotep is almost human, is able to communicate with humans. He travels in human lands and drives people insane. He's a kind of Dionysus figure. And this prose poem, uh, the narrator describes his own encounter with Nyarlathotep and how Nyarlathotep's message, his his shtick, because in the story, Nyarlathotep is a traveling showman who brings this, he shows a film and he travels from city to city showing his film and then demonstrating all kinds of crazy technological marvels. And through this show drives people insane. The narrator sees this show and then basically just follows the throngs of spectators into an abyss that's described very evocatively at the end of the story. But what I liked about it and the affordances this story gives us in, the, in a very contemporary context, they're multiple, I think. But the first paragraph in particular is a precise description of the current historical moment we're living now. Did you get that feeling reading it? I strongly got that feeling. Let's just read the first paragraph then to, to give people an idea of what we're talking about. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. To a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger, a danger widespread and all-embracing, such a danger as may be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. I recall that the people went about with pale and worried faces and whispered warnings and prophecies which no one dared consciously repeat or acknowledge to himself that he had heard. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a daimoniac alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely and everyone felt that the world and perhaps the universe had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. That, to me, reads like basically just a pre of our times, of the Trump age, of the climate change age. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Global weirding. Yeah. Down to the details, the heat lasting longer, you know, the winters getting shorter, the sense of monstrous guilt, like somehow we did this, you know? that we're involved, yeah. that we're complicit in this. A season of political and social upheaval combined with an apprehension of hideous physical danger. And it's in this atmosphere, in this in this situation, that the figure of Nyarlathotep, the messenger of the outer gods, 
emerges or appears. And he brings with him wonders and strangeness. And he goes on this tour and from city to city shares his strange discoveries and his weird mysteries and leaves just a trail of madness and nightmares in his wake. Um, Mm. It's a very pregnant piece of writing, I find. And I think we could dig for a long time in these three pages of writing. We could just dig real deep into this and find all kinds of resonances and, and insights. Yeah, what were your impressions? Tell me about what you thought of it. What struck me in particular was not just the stuff that it relates pretty clearly to things that we can recognize in our own environment. For example, the demoniac alteration in the sequence of the seasons. Coming right now, there's a hurricane smashing the east coast of the United States, and that kind of crazy intensified weather has now just become the new normal, right? Uh, It's not just stuff that we might say is timely or topical. It's also something that he, he, when he's describing the danger a strange and brooding apprehension of a hideous physical danger, a danger widespread and all-embracing, such a danger as may be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. Okay, so this is a perfect example of a Lovecraft line where I'm like, you know, I can find things to criticize about the prose, like the terrible phantasms of the night. I can so easily imagine Vincent Price reading that line. It's so over-the-top and juicy, And yet it communicates something very specific to me. You know, I have bad sleep problems anyway. And I've also, as I've mentioned a number of times, have had problems with depression. And the two tend to feed off of one another. So when I'm depressed, I can't sleep. And it's the long sleepless hours of the night that are absolutely the worst. And those nights become choked with this nameless dread, this weird apprehension, this, you know, what Lovecraft calls a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger. But it's weird is that you can't put it on anything. You can't exactly say, oh, well, it's some specific danger that I could recognize. It's amorphous and shifting. It, 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 it eludes capture. It eludes representation or even being named. And so I'm, I'm looking at this passage and I'm like, yes, I know what you're talking about. There are <laughs> phantasms of the night and they do feel like this, this strange brooding apprehension. And there's a passage in David Foster Wallace's novel, Infinite Jest, that to me is like the most brilliant putting into words of such a nameless apprehension, a nameless terror. This is a passage of a dialogue that takes place in a drug recovery house. And one of the residents is talking about terrors, about the accidental unleashing of a terror from playing his violin and having a fan running at the same time. And there's a weird combination of a tone on his violin and a tone from the fan that combines and it conjures a shape in his head. And he describes it. And this description is supposed to, I think, convey something of a feeling of radical despair that a depressed person who lives at this house is feeling. So this is the description. As the two vibrations combined, it was as if a large, dark, billowing shape came billowing out of some corner of my mind. I can be no more precise than to say large, dark shape 
and billowing, what came flapping out of some backwater of my psyche I had not had the slightest inkling was there. It was total horror. It was all horror everywhere, distilled and given form. It rose in me, out of me, summoned somehow by the odd confluence of the fan and those notes. It rose and grew larger and became engulfing and more horrible than I shall ever have the power to convey. I dropped my violin and ran from the room. And the person he's talking to asks, was it triangular, the shape? When you say billowing, do you mean like a triangle? Shapeless. Shapelessness was one of the horrible things about it. I can say and mean only shape, dark, and either billowing or flapping. But because the horror receded the moment I left the room, within minutes it had become unreal. The shape and the horror. It seemed to have been my imagination, some random bit of psychic flatulence, an anomaly. In just the way any child will probe a wound or pick at a scab, I returned shortly to the room and the fan and picked up the violin again and produced the resonance again immediately. And immediately again, the black flapping shape rose in my mind again. It was a bit like a sail or a small part of a wing of something far too large to be seen in totality. It was total psychic horror. Death, decay, dissolution, cold, empty, black, malevolent, lonely, voided space. It was the worst thing I've ever confronted. Hmm. And that is some Lovecraftian shit right yeah, there. Well, not, yeah, very specifically. There's a story titled The Music of Eric Zahn, which is precisely about a violinist who's living in a garret in some eldritch town. He's playing these strange notes, and the narrator learns that he's actually playing to another sonorous entity that's outside the house. And he's partially trying to play with this thing and partially trying to play to banish it. It's the same. It's the same. I wonder how conscious that was on David Foster Wallace's part. I'm not sure, but there seems to be a, a very clear reference, conscious or unconscious. It seems significant that in both cases, it's a violin. It's music. Yeah. Right. It seems significant for that matter that the blind idiot god Azathoth has these two infernal pipers constantly making a kind of demented music. Right. Around him. The music keeps coming up in these contexts. And I think, okay, stupid idea. I'll try it out. It's because what's horrible is not that which is susceptible to representation. That the feeling of horror is something more like a resonance or a sound or maybe a smell or to get back to what we were saying at the beginning, a mood, you know, and it's and music is actually kind of a figure for that irrational something that nevertheless penetrates to our depths and moves us and changes us in ways that we're not even aware of. We're aware of being changed, but we don't know what's happening to us. Yeah, because sound is... It's interesting that music is a figure of that. It is. Sound is less susceptible to cognitive capture in the representational sense. It's harder to pin down, oh, that's what it means. That's what it represents. It's not like an image where you can find some comfort in saying, oh, it's a representation of a black shape. No, the music evokes it. And it's really hard to get the sense that in pinning a representation on a sound, especially a musical sound, it's very hard to get the feeling that you've exhausted its significance by doing that. There's always a leftover. There's always an excess in music that resists all attempts to cognitively capture it into representation. So music is a very, I think, a very 
What the fuck? <laughs> I can hear that. She's pounding chicken. Seriously. I guess we'll have to wait because she'll... <laughs> Sorry. We should just leave this bit in. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's done. So, yeah, music is, uh, I think, a very useful figure to someone that's trying to convey a mood, you know, obviously. And, and, and I think that, you know, Lovecraft, when he talks about how all a weird story can do is convey a mood, this story is like a perfect example of it because I think the entirety of it is to convey the coming into fulfillment of a dread presentment. What starts off as something inchoate and nameless and only distantly terrifying comes into focus without ever being named, without ever finally being grasped. But the immensity of it presses on us as we go through this you know, rather short story that it's the coming into being of that thing, that nameless thing. Right. That's the fundamental image. And apparently Lovecraft wrote this story out of a dream. Yes, like he, he did. Had a yeah. dream and wrote immediately upon waking. And to me, the power of the story is that power of the dream, the dream that can carry with it an incredible feeling of fatality. And yet you find yourself completely unable to convey that mood to, you know, your spouse when you wake up. And say, oh, I had this terrible dream. No, you have to build into it. You have to unfold it or translate it into some kind of narrative. And that's what you were getting at earlier, right? That Lovecraft, in order to convey a mood through writing, through prose, you need narrative, but the narrative is not the end. The narrative is a means to an end. The narrative is the way by which you will get the person to feel what it is that you want to convey. And that thing, in a sense, transcends the events of the narrative. The, the events of the narrative are just kind of like aspects or facets or perspectives on this mood or ways for it to come to you. But nevertheless, in that narrative translation of mood into story, the mood becomes knowable. The mood becomes open to interpretation and thinking. And that's kind of the magic is that, yeah, okay, I get the mood he's trying to give me. But look what he wrote. Look what's built into it. A very precise description of a historical moment that I think we're experiencing right now. Not only that, but so the, the figure of Nirlathotep emerges from Egypt in the story. And did you get this untimely sense? Like at first you're reading the story and you think that this is happening in the distant past. But then slowly he describes how he lives in this big city and there are tramways. So, oh, no, it's happening now. Or maybe this is happening always. Maybe this is a kind of myth, one of those myths that never happened but is always happening. You know, like, and then, and Nyarlathotep comes and he speaks of, like, he spoke much of the sciences of electricity and psychology, the two great scientific breakthroughs of Lovecraft's time. So the weird thing is that Nyarlathotep doesn't bring electricity and psychology to humans. What he does in the story is he brings the deeper implications of electricity and psychology to humans, and that's what drives them crazy. Because later on, as Nyarlathotep is spreading madness through the city, the narrator goes out and everybody's panicking, and then the electrical lights of the city start to fade out, and they start to complain about the electrical company. That's what he says. We started to complain about the company. But the thing is that, so electricity was already 
part of daily life before Neolothotep came. But what he came and did was he showed what electricity implied and what psych- modern psychology implied. And that's what humans can't take. And this is very much part and parcel of Lovecraft's vision that science itself would disclose a reality that we can't handle. That through this process by which we develop modern technology and implement it and let it transform our lives, that we are transforming ourselves into something inhuman. So yes, there's that mood. That's the key. But there's so much packed into that narrative translation of the mood um, that I think a real work of weird fiction becomes a kind of prophecy. And I found this in many Lovecraft stories. In The Color Out of Space, which I read about in Reclaiming Art, in Cthulhu, and we talked about the connection between Cthulhu and the nuclear bomb. I mean, there's a way in which this is oversimplifying his work, like saying, oh, he's actually talking. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that this type of ecstatic writing has prophetic value. Maybe it's it's always after the fact that you can look back and say, oh, man, wow, that really applies. And you couldn't have done it then. That's possible. But the point is that the connections are there. I can't ignore them. There's one theory that Nyarlathotep is a, a figure that represents uh, Nikola Tesla. Have you heard that theory? No. Yeah, because Nikola Tesla would travel around. You know, he'd have these tours and he'd bring this crazy roadshow from city to city. And he'd, it was like filled with like lightning and all kinds of electrical marvels. And it was, it was like really impressive to see. And Tesla presented himself as a kind of harbinger of, of the future, this kind of like new man, right. this man who had transcended all the limitations that had boxed humanity in and limited it in the past. And now all of a sudden, Tesla will unleash this energy onto the world. This is the way he told his story. And I think Lovecraft is reacting a little bit to that, that we're playing with forces we can't handle, which is abundantly clear today. You know, as one person once put it, who could have thought in 1880 that the internal combustion engine was a machine for altering global climate? Yeah. That's what it was all along. But no one could have seen that until it was doing it. And I think Lovecraft felt that. One of the, the reasons why he was such a Luddite, in a sense, such a conservative, he just felt that in unleashing these forces, electricity, cognitive psychology, et cetera, there was a big risk in that. And um, I think today we're seeing that his fears were not completely unwarranted or unfounded. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, to get back to what I was saying at the beginning, that I think of Lovecraft as the poet of the buffered self or writing a horror of the buffered self, that certainly seems to be true of the man himself. His like anxiety doesn't seem like the right word. Paranoia over the various immigrant groups and races pooling in New York City. You know, when he was living in Red Hook, New Jersey, you know, he absolutely frickin' hated it. Yeah. And he wrote a lot, at least privately, of his abhorrence of these, you know, as he saw it, mongrel races uh, or this mongrelization of the United States. And that definitely is a kind of a fear of contamination oh yeah you know and it's interesting to see that lovecraft has been like everybody picks up on lovecraft these days but one group that has picked up on him has been the alt-right the kind of nativist white nationalist right who of course they enjoy the racism of lovecraft's thinking but they are themselves it seems to me in the grips of a kind of panic at 
being forced to inhabit a world where there's people different from them, contaminating them, endangering the purity of their DNA, of their bloodlines, of their culture or whatever, you know, however they want to frame it. If there's this panic about cultural or social infection that is in Lovecraft that translates to our era. And if you think that it's a problem of the alt-right, you'd be wrong, because I think that this is a general pattern of panic. The alt-right, I think, is maybe one expression of it. You were saying about the internal combustion engine. Who would have thought in 1880 that the internal combustion engine is a machine for changing global climate? Well, likewise, with the internet, what does the internet do? Well, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true, to say, that the internet is about connecting people, bringing people together, right? So all of a sudden, everybody is talking to or at one another all the time. We're in this culturally novel situation of having an entire world sewn together in a bag. You know, we're all yeah. stuffed together in a sack, just as Marshall McLuhan foretold. This is what McLuhan meant when he talked about a, a global village. And he pointed out that the tribal village, which for him would be the model of the new age of human beings remade by electronic communications technology, he'd like to point out that this is not a harmonious picture. For him, village life is fundamentally agonistic. Um, so it's a world of tittle-tattle, of constant gossip, a world in which you don't have boundaries against other people, that in tribal society, the modern notion of the individual as a buffered self is entirely beside the point. So I'm going to hypothesize that what we are living in is not just global climate change, but a global unbuffering of the subject. Yeah. And in this unbuffering, it's as if we've been walking around swaddled up in layers of protective wrapping, and all of a sudden, it's torn off of our bodies, and we are naked before this whirling tornado, this whirling vortex of social forces suddenly penetrating us. We can't get away from them. We can't buffer ourselves from them. And so this widespread panic over infection being corrupted by people or things, the panic over, if you're a right-winger, the panic over immigration, or if you're a left-winger, the panic over the creeping influence of the alt-right. These are, they're like startle reactions, panic reactions from the great unbuffering of the Western self. subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.